So, Sierra, welcome. Thank you. Well, what I'd like to talk to you today about is what I've been learning since 2005 when I wrote my first paper, actually 2004 when I wrote it, about complexity and systems engineering. I've been a systems engineer since about 1980, first on satellites, second on air traffic control, and then third, more or less since that point as a consultant helping other people do it, uh, but on everything. So um, that, of course, wasn't enough to do, and I was getting bored, so I'm sure you're recognizing this. And um, so I had to go and read some more books and started reading about chaos theory and complexity theory, which is one of the daughters of chaos theory, and thought, you know, this is kind of important stuff, and I think we should be doing this in systems engineering. One thing that I didn't tell you for your bio, I guess, is that INCOSI has a working group called the Complex Systems Working Group. I'm the head, but because of this little thing called a dissertation, we tend to not be doing a lot right now. Um, my co-chair is also working on this dissertation, and um, so it's, we've done about five or six uh, monthly, monthly webinars, so you could actually... Uh, in, at your time, we we tend to do it around noon East Coast time, so it'd be you know early evening for you, and um, you could actually listen in. They are up on the Inclusive website. If you want to be a member of the group, I think you can email me, and we'll put you on. And then you can go to the website and download or watch the webinars if you like. Anyway, what I'll talk about today is what do I call systems engineering and. One of, uh, I also, at the same time I was sending you information, Renee, I was also sending it to the North Star chapter in Minnesota, and they said, definitions, we've heard, you know, way too many boring people talk about definitions. Can't you get, tell me something interesting that you're going to talk about? So I sent them something else, but I guess Renee is more um, tolerant than the North, the, those cold people up in Minnesota. And then I'm going to talk to you about what do I mean by complexity and some of the, get this, complexity about what it is, it is that's complexity. Uh, as part of my doctoral work, I was told by my committee and my advisor in particular to come up with a typology of, of complexity. What does it mean to be complex? And so I read everything that he sent me to read and I read a few other things and I came up with six types, which I will show you. Because my dissertation requires me to interview programs about how complex they are. And in order to do that, I realized, I, well, first of all, I had to mean in, according to what? You can't just say how complex are you. You have to have some criteria that they measure on some sort of scale. And I realized when I was writing up the questions about how complex you are that there were at least three things that could be complex or not. One was the system that you're building. One is the project that's building the system, and one is the environment, particularly the stakeholders, who are going to be receiving the system. So I'll sh I'll, that's the bottom line. I just sort of um, blew my surprise uh, here. So that's what we'll get to then. But then I have a really cool, you'll never read it unless you move up really close diagram at the end in case you're not overwhelmed yet. I live in mortal fear of boring people. So people never almost never say, oh, I knew all that, but they do say, Wah! all right, so hopefully not too many people will come screaming out of, the, um, out of the meeting. And by the way, write this down in your notes about South Africa. People in Cape Town laugh a lot better than people in Pretoria. <laughs> really? No, it took two days and then only a few titters. <laughs> I'm measuring. I've got a laugh meter, right? No. All right, so we'll go right into what is systems engineering 
have you heard of this S, the systems engineering V life cycle? That's essentially a waterfall model, but folded. Okay, so that when you go down and you come to the point where you have little bits and pieces that you're building, you then integrate them and make sure that you integrate them to come up with this. And then you verify or test them, make sure you come up with uh, meeting those requirements. They validate and make sure you meet the need. That's the way I like to think of the V. Um, another way is people say, do you have any systems engineers? And you just go and you pull out your org chart and go, well, Renee's the one that's in charge of the Department of Systems Engineering. Why don't you go talk to Renee? Uh, a third kind is principles. Uh, have you heard of the book System Architecting by Eberhard Recton? He was from USC, University of Southern California. He actually died, but Mark Mayer was his co-author on a subsequent book called The Art of Systems Architecting. I'll probably mention Mark later. Um, but they have, what I like about it is he has been, had been through so many programs in systems engineering. He has wonderful stories throughout that book. And he comes up with what he calls heuristics, such as use effectiveness criteria based on needs to make system decision. And then, not only does he have whatever six or eight words there, he has a paragraph or a chapter even explaining what that means and why it's important. I think that a lot of the art of systems engineering, and in his case, he's calling it system architecting, it means the upfront design part of it. Um, a lot of the art is, only, or is best transmitted through stories rather than through math. And so this book is great on that. In addition, in COSI, and I was part of this way back when, in 1994, released a draft of something called Pragmatic Principles of Systems Engineering. I can still find it by going to Google and throwing in that word pragmatic, which is fortunately a pretty uh, uncommon word. But if you write in Pragmatic Principles Systems Engineering, you will find the NCOSI document. It has since been changed not one period to my knowledge, but then made it made into a final because it's sort of silly to have 14 years or 16, 17 years later still calling it a draft and nobody's even touched it. I like it and it has things like know the problem, the customer and the consumer. But as you know, if you've worked in systems engineering for any length of time, just reading those seven or eight words isn't going to teach you systems engineering. What does it mean to know the problem is something you learn over time. Of course, NCOSI has a handbook out, and to my knowledge, it does not disagree in any way with, say, the principles and heuristics that have already been uh, recorded. It's just, it's a backup for it. Um, I'm not real, uh, really a big fan of the way the handbook is organized, but they didn't ask me, so I'm good with that. Uh, there's something, Military Standard 499B was in the works and had had one round of, um, of comments and they went and they uh, took it and made it simpler to respond to those comments and then it was canceled. So what the people that use it do is they use the second to the last version, the May version of, of May of whatever year, I think it was 94, maybe 92, somewhere in there, uh, when they use it. And what they're talking about is really in my mind it's a third dimension through the V. So as you're going down this V, you're also doing requirements analysis, you're doing physical synthesis, the functional and allocation between them, and oh, by the way, while you're at it, you're doing systems analysis and management. So it's a different view of what we do. And one thing I insisted to my students in the tutorial the last couple of days is I don't say much is absolutely and positively true about complex systems, but I, do, I don't remember the second one right now. But the first one is definitely no complex system has only one view. Every complex system needs more than one view to explain it. 
So, and usually on different scales. So there'd be, you know, big thing. Uh, where are we? I wrote a paper. I remember, Renee, I don't even remember when you did this, 1990, I mean, 2004 or five, something like that, coming up to me, I'm going to borrow this, thank you, and saying, excuse me, are you Sarah Sheard? And I see this guy, you know, in course he's full of men, right? And so he's just yet another one. And he walks up to me. <laughs> so I, I thought it at the time. I've since learned differently. No, I, no. <laughs> And he goes, <laughs> excuse me, are you Sarah Shoot? And I said, yeah. And he says, we in South Africa think, Africa think very highly of your 12 rolls paper. Would you autograph it for me, please? <laughs> <laughs> and I went home and told everybody I knew that I'm known around the world and aren't I cool. So thank you for that. Yeah. <laughs> and I told him no for the first year. Remember yeah. that? Um, and so anyway, the, the thing is that the 12 rolls paper came about because we had in the Washington metropolitan area chapter a, uh, a session where we asked several of the, you know, more experienced, older people in the chapter to come and talk about what is the value of systems engineering. And I sat there in the chapter, I said, no two people are talking about the same thing. So I, I wrote this paper saying, uh, basically, picture a bunch of three by five cards, and I read through you know, George's talk, and I said, you know, he's talking about requirements here, and he's talking about tests here, and, and I threw it on the table, and then I write all the cards for this guy and this guy, you know, and, and read through the standards that were there, like the, the mill standards, which were probably there at the time, um, and some other papers in the, in the initial journal, the initial issue of the Nkosi Journal, which was a one-timer before they started the Andy Sage one. And I read through and I said, everybody's talking about these things, but they're adding them up differently. And they include doing requirements, designing a system, doing system analysis, like systems thinking type stuff, doing validation verification, um, taking the voice of the user, really, the operator, uh, something I call glue, what probably should be called integrator of the system, but glue sort of, you know, glue between subsystems. It sort of tells you what I mean, because the word system integrator can mean a company, you know, a role, uh, uh, a company role. And I'm trying to say what the individual is expected to. Most of these things are somebody says, oh, you're the systems engineer, therefore you will do, and if you could add that, then it, would, it belonged up here, okay, that it's a systems engineering role. Not that everybody said, in fact, none of these everybody said. And no two were alike. Okay. Customer interface. You're the systems engineer. Therefore, you should serve as the uh, surrogate customer while we're writing the proposal. You should be in touch with the customer and know what the customer is saying. So you're the customer interface. Uh, that's one. Technical manager. Big one. Systems engineering managers always do that. Um, not too many people thought we should be trusted with cost and schedule, which I think is fine with most of us. We just want to do the technical. Um, and then information manager was my term. I think it's actually picked up now. I expected it was going to be used shortly after I wrote it in 1995, published in 96, but it hasn't been. I used it to mean data management, configuration management, and metrics. And I think we're starting to talk about information management now, but we, 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 we weren't then. Um, at that point, we were starting to write systems engineering processes. So when somebody says, you're the systems engineer, therefore you need to tell me what your process is, then I could consider that that was a role, 
a, a process engineer. It's not, in my mind, pretty far away from most of these others. But it was one that they said is a systems engineering role. They had coordinator, uh, which I think was a lot like glue. In fact, the, it was originally 10 roles. And then I threw in the 11th role because glue is something you can do by yourself. But coordinator is inherently something you need to do with other people. So I split that one. And then t t classified ad systems engineering was other. I had recently, like two years before, sought a new job. And when you open up the newspaper, remember newspapers? We used to read these like pieces of paper and stuff for our news. But you flip to the classifieds. Remember classified ads? This is, I'm feeling so old. Um, <laughs> and you read it and it says things like shell scripting. I don't have any idea what that is. And all this stuff that had to do with computers and administration of a mainframe. Remember mainframes? Oh gosh, it's been such changes. Anyway, so I called it classified systems engineering, classified ad systems engineering. And I got two kinds of comments about that. The first is it's about time we recognize classified ads because it's there. Microsoft certified systems engineer. It's what I call classified ads. The other people said, no, that doesn't belong. It's not a systems engineering role. So tough. <laughs> anyway, I've since then come to consider this mostly what I'll call information technology systems engineering, although it's also sometimes really information technology systems administration with the wrong name. Okay. Anyway, the, um, there's another paper I talked about where um, really there's a difference in what you do when you're the systems engineer. If you're actually working on a program, and this is a contract right here, you get a contract, then your point is to take what you need to do, which we know is a problem, it's well-defined, fairly well-defined problem, and we create a solution in a way that is uh, profit-making for our institution, and it comes in on time and sustainable, and, and has like action items focus, and that's kind of what I'll call program systems engineering. The one before it, like before the contract, either studies or preliminary things or the kinds of things that uh, think tanks do, I'll call discovery systems engineering. And there we don't even know if it's possible. So some of these complicated orbital analysis things, today I would call uh, some of the nanotechnology types of things up there on, on looking at unprecedented problems and can we solve them. And once we've decided we can, then we do this. And then there's a third kind, which I'll call approach, which is you can do the systems engineering process when you create a presentation for South Africa. You can figure out who's going to be there. You can figure out what they want to know. You can structure your presentation so that it, you know, it, with some sort of design so that it meets the needs, et cetera. I'll call that approach. Um, in the paper, it actually shows it as being in low complexity. Ooh, there's that word, huh? Um, but I realized when I did the presentation that you do it no matter what you're doing. You just do it kind of in the background. So uh, those are there. And the question is, when we move from systems engineering, what happens when we start looking at complexity? What happens when we look at more complex systems, which I'll define in a minute? Well, the answer is we haven't got this down yet. I think we can use the heuristics because honestly, systems engineering has always been, the point of it has always been to engineer more complex systems than we know how to. Um, but we should use, and there's a lot of ways we can improve those based on research. Um, we can also use the principles ex extended by research. That's kind of where I'm going right now. I, I think as we get there and we start to engineer more complex systems and make them work, that we can come up with um, 
this principles or at least practices and, and processes that we've just learned from trying them and making them work. Although a lot of those are ones that are just really do extend. Okay, so that's what I say systems engineering. Before I go on, any questions here? You guys already know this, right? Because you're all systems engineers. Okay, so we'll go on. The question is, oh, and then this is just the text for those of you who like text better than um, pictures. I like pictures. All right, so in general, uh, a friend of mine talked about the point of systems engineering is to take a problem and use the av available technology to solve it. Let's come up with a solution. And in general, uh, the way we systems engineers have done it is to use the V, coordinate, follow processes, um, do it efficiently. I think trade-offs, let's see, the two things that are really um, unique in engineering world tend to be the trade-offs for systems engineering and requirements. And then attending to interfaces is also very important for systems engineering. And ensuring that the properties that you want to have emerge as the system are there. Like at Jerry Lake, um, early systems engineering, used to be, I think he was one of the first two, uh, might have been the first in COSI president. He once said, the di you know, an emergent property is the difference between a helicopter and 3,000 parts flying in close formation. <laughs> So that would be, a flight would be an emergent property of 3,000 parts if you hook them up together properly. And then the question is, what do you do when you turn it, um, turn it to com complex systems? We still have a problem. We still have a solution. We still have available technology. We just might add some new techniques. Okay, so that's the goal. The question is what? What would Sarah suggest? Well, I'm going to back up and say, this is not the first time we've ever talked about complexity in systems engineering. Um, according to Tom, Tom Hughes, uh, in rescuing Prometheus, the, the engineers, scientists, and managers had found the systems approach effective in responding to complexity. So he says it happened in the 60s. Bless his heart, Peter Scott, who worked at Lockheed Martin and a few other things in there, handed me and gave me and... and you know, passed on his book that he learned from Arthur Hall, who wrote the first systems engineering book, and he actually took the class from him in 1964. Okay, so the book had been out two years when Peter took the class from him, and he gave it to me, and so he now owned this, and it said systems engineering as a separate function in what he called organized creative technology has come because of increasing system complexity. So I think this is fair to say that the idea of using systems engineering in order to manage complexity has been around since the first textbook in it. By the way, it's not really an available book, but if you should happen to come across it, it's really interesting. Because today we think of systems engineering as do this, do this, do this, right? It's a process. He says, you know, learn psychology. You know, learn how to do this. The only thing that, you know, it really makes his out of date is that he doesn't know anything about personal computers. Go figure, you know. All right, so back in 1960, well, that's a little before 1962. Let's move this forward, okay? Maybe that one, right? Somebody old enough to have flown sometime in the 60s? That looks about right for 1962. And they do evolve, okay? Every time we get a new kind, it's more complex than the one before. But we can handle it because... You know, this type of complexity starts to look, you know, manageable by the time we start doing that. That one looks manageable. And then we start some fancy ones and we get some, you know, military jet fighters. They fly faster. They can fall apart at the mock speeds and stuff. And then we go even more and more and we get, you know, super high-tech properties of them. And then what? 
Then we have now, okay? So this is like right now. What's going to happen? I mean, what has been happening? We're still dealing with complexity, but look what I think we're dealing with, okay? That's kind of a change. This is from the Army, the U.S. Army in, in 2006, and you got planes, Right? You got some more complex, some less complex. You got helicopters, satellites. You got webs down in the lower left. I'm going to have to get out my blinding. It's, it's all your fault, Renee. Yes. See if this is possible, right? Close your eyes. Quick. Okay. Okay. I'll try to turn it off. All right. So down in the far corner over here boop, um, is the we is, is a, uh, internet or intranet that's used. But you've got... Uh, um, You've got lots of things that could happen, right? I mean, when you had a plane, you basically knew what it was going to do, right? You're going to get on it. It's going to fly somewhere. It's going to land. You're going to get off. Here, what's going to happen? One of the things about this, present, about this conference is that uh, a gentleman in the audience said something that stuck with me ever since, which is the minute you come up with a scenario, you're assuming away most of the problem. And that's interesting, because the problems we had when, in dealing with these, we could come up with scenarios, right? They're, it's easy. Here, we can't even get to those problems until we solve most of the problem. So the question is, given this, how well do our current systems engineering techniques work, and is there something that we can add to them to help with that? Back um, before, before 2005, for the 10 years from 95 to 2005, I worked for what was called eventually the Systems and Software Consortium. It was a consortium of basically cab companies that all gave us dues to work on stuff. So um, we're semi-think tank, maybe, you know, somewhere between a think tank and a bunch of consultants. And um, they all wanted to know how to deal with complexity. It was added up differently. It was things like, what do we do when we have multiple contractors, distributed development? What do we do when we have distributed systems that are supposed to talk to each other from different locations around the world? How do we, you know, how do we deal with... Um, how do we simulate big things? And, you know, we were doing the best we could on a case-by-case -case basis, but I wanted to take a step back and say, what's all this complexity about? Maybe if I go look at the sciences, we can bring them into engineering. Because, as you know, there was no electronic and electrical engineering until there was electricity and magnetism science. There was no mechanical engineering until we had, well, I mean, that was a while back, Newton, you know. <laughs> but, um, in theory... Engineering is based on science. In practice, systems engineering is based on experience. We really don't have that science connection, and so the Complex Systems Working Group um, was kind of founded to bring the science of complexity and complex systems into engineering you know, usability. But again, you're not going to take people who have you know, 18 action items due by 10 o'clock tomorrow morning and expect them to get doctorates in science before they go on. So the question is, what can I do, what can the COSI do, what can the Complex Systems Working Group do to take the science and make it usable in a way that doesn't make it too simple? Because it makes it too simple, you kind of lose the complexity, you know? It kind of interferes with complexity. So how do you do that? And the way I looked at it when I did my, um, my paper for my advisor was I looked at what everybody thinks is complexity. So I have a bunch of spectra here. For example, if there's just one thing over here versus an infinity of things over here, that there's one side that's less complex and one side that's more complex. And I have about three times this number of things in a list, okay? And I'm going to give you a test, right? 
I'm going to give you a test. Because what I'm going to do is take all these things on the right, and I'm going to put them on a sheet of paper, and I'm going to split them in two groups. And I'm going to ask you, what's the difference? You ready for that? Okay, so remember, there's a spectrum for each of these. Weakly integrated, highly integrated, predictable, unpredictable. Okay, these all came from the literature. Now, I split these down the middle into two groups with the white ones on one side and the gray on the other. I'll let you read them and tell me what's the difference between the two sides. Hmm? Although these could be chaotic, but I think they're both meant to refer to complex systems and say there might be a um, not-so-costly and a costly, and that could still mean the, the simple system versus the complex system. Well, they are more pessimistic, <laughs> but that wasn't what I was going for. No, that's going to be important in a minute. Is it Valerie? No, Ver, Ver, Verena. They're unbounded. Interesting. Uh, let's go and let's get some more. Okay, so this is why we're all walking around depressed. Okay, so half this group is on drugs because of, our, because of these half. Okay, I actually buy that. <laughs> but I'm trying to go for something different. It is more emotional. You're getting really close here. What I've come up with... Um, is that, and it comes from Hilary Silito, another Nkosi fellow who's from um, England. And he basically says this is the objective, sorry, subjective complexity, which fits with your emotional. And I forgot what you said, Verena, but it was, it was reminding me of that too. And then this is the objective complexity. Another way to say that is over on this side um, is characteristics that define the system. And this one is our perception of it. Just because we're not very emotionally mature and we get depressed over these things isn't the system's fault, right? Um, and another way to put that is, I think these cause complexity and these are the results of it. With some exceptions. I mean, I'll, I'll say that I think instability might actually belong over here. Um, uh, and there was one other one that I could be... I could be um, persuaded, maybe uncontrollable, could be persuaded. But, I mean, our, the, the deal, and the fact, the emotion in it is, I want to be able to control it, and I can't. Darn it. You know? I could say other things, but I'm being polite. I wasn't being polite in the tutorial. I was actually getting the creationists and the evolutionists into arguments with each other. <laughs> you, I mean, honestly, you're not bored when you leave my tutorial. <laughs> All right, so do you agree with this? Okay, that there are some things that are really characteristics of the system and they would contribute to a sense of complexity and other things that are kind of characteristics of how we interpret what's going on and they're kind of the results of complexity. Okay, because I thought that was clever. I thought that was actually a contribution because I haven't seen it anywhere. And I, don't th I think I wrote a paper. I don't remember if I put that into it or not. But anyway, these are the things from the left side, the things that are characteristics of the system. And um, the question is, based on the fact that we've been dealing with complexity as systems engineers since the 1960s, how do we do it, right? Well, we've got a bunch of techniques. And you'll recognize these from, you know, from the handbook. You'll recognize them from the V, you know, hierarchy and modularization, decomposition, um, architecture, et cetera. And, and I would maintain that what we do here really addresses these. And, and I leave this as an exercise for the student because I would be bored. Okay, so you guys can go and do that. And I, I think it'll happen, and I'm actually kind of curious about somebody come and say, no, nope, we're missing this one. But the question then becomes, what else 
can we bring to bear on these problems from the system sciences? And one of them is, and we talked about this for two days in the, um, in the tutorial, planning co-evolution of your system and your environment. For example, oh, you know that. You know that. For example, um, your competitor comes up with a 200-watt gadget, and yours is only 180. So then you come up with a 210-watt gadget, and you send your little, who's the consultant weenies? You're, you're a consultant weenie, right? So they send your little consultant weenie out to consult with the uh, customer and tell them that they really need 205 watts. So next time they ask for a gadget, they ask for one that your competitor can't provide them. That's co-evolving. You're getting your environment to evolve so that you're more fit. Okay? So we do that already, don't we? We do that. Um, We've, and, and the idea of not necessarily control, controlling things so much as making sure they stay in a, in a condition or state space that is safe. And we only kind of monitor to see if they're coming close to the edge and if then knock them back, but we don't actually have to keep them in a particular spot. Um, that's a pretty more conceptual thing. Understand what it means to have decentralized control. We're doing that, and by we I mean the industry with things like um, networks of sensors and sensors that are kind of swarms, swarms so they each have some um, knowledge of their own and they communicate with others. We're trying to figure out how that works. Um, we're, we understand hierarchy and modularity to some extent. I think um, not so much as we could and that we don't necessarily understand networks as well or put it a slightly more positive and non-pessimistic way, optimistic way, is that there is uh, help that we can find with little, e fairly little effort, both in the networks field and the field of mod modularity and hierarchy. It can help us to design and, and understand what was happening better. Uh, we still will use the techniques that we use today. Um, we'll do more intensive modeling and simulation. I think if anybody has a job doing modeling simulation, it's going to go up and down, but it'll go kind of, it's like the stock market's always promised. It'll always, you know, go up in the end, especially now, because because you really can't control that without modeling. Okay, uh, one of the biggest problems, coincidentally, I'm finding is that we got a model for a tank, we got a model for a, a spacecraft, we got a model, I'm sorry, for an airplane, we got a model for orbits. We got lots of models here. How do we all use them all together? There was a really great story that I think was true about um, a model that was used by the Australian Air Force for a battlefield of a bunch of soldiers running around. And they reused the model for wildlife management. And they came down and, and um, were trying what would happen if they buzzed the kangaroos, would they all scatter? And the kangaroos scattered, but then they came back over the hill with submachine guns. <laughs> <laughs> Blew down the helicopter. Oh, there might be some erroneous assumptions in our models here. All right, so I threw this in because Renee said I had a few extra minutes compared to the last time. And what I teach in my um, tutorial is that there is a spectrum between order and disorder, if you will, between order and chaos. But I put it here for reasons you probably have to come to the whole two-day class to kind of understand thoroughly. Within order, there's two kinds of order. There's stability. Uh, do you need to have this lights turned down? Or can you see okay here? All right. uh, there's stability and there's oscillation. So things can be actually stable. Should I tell them the story about my brother-in-law? I should tell them that story? Okay. There's, um, 
the stable, stable stability like here, and then there's oscillation. So both of those are considered ordered. Uh, and then there's disorder here where everything's just random. Part of the problem with stability in particular is that nothing happens. You know, maybe you want to do something. And if it's stable, it doesn't do anything. And of course, part of the problem with disorder is that whatever does happen, and lots of things can happen, it's different tomorrow. I give examples of a you know, totally bureaucratic um, IBM-like in the 70s company where it's just so rigid that you're guaranteed whatever they did last year, they'll do this year and next year. And it's good for a bureaucracy or a government to kind of maintain some stability. Uh, but, and then, oh, then the, but, but then, you know, if you need to change because your competitor is agile and coming up with a new iPhone or something, how can you keep up with them? You're just going to keep doing yourself into the economic grave if you don't make changes. So these, anything that's sort of located on the order spectrum generally tends to move a little bit towards the middle. These I compare to the dot-coms of the early 2000s, which, and, and you've been to that meeting, right? You went to the meeting where everybody agreed to do something. And then they all went home or went back to their desk, and then they had the meeting the next week, and nobody had a clue what it is they decided last week, right? You had to have the meeting over again because we have disorder so much that we don't, we don't capture what we're doing, and it's different next week anyway. I had the boss there, whatever he'd tell me on Tuesday, I realized after I was no longer working for him, I shouldn't even bother because on Thursday he was going to tell me something else. I should just go sneak the time, do what I wanted to do, and nod and say, I'll work on it. Yeah, 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 I'll work on it. And then Thursday he'll tell me not to do it. It's good. I got to do my things from Tuesday to Thursday, and I'll start doing his Thursday thing on Thursday. And then I can do, start doing his Monday thing next Monday. And I never have to produce anything, and I can do what I wanted. Now, why didn't I think of that at the time? Anyway, that was kind of a disordered set up and never had much output. So the goal is if you're disordered and you're, you know, something or other dot com, you got to kind of move towards order. As we pointed out in the tutorial, what is the means of moving towards order that we've been generally using? And it kind of works. Processes. We write down what we do and we try to do them again. And the means of disordering too stable stuff is to insert some agility. It tends to be um, set, well, the skunk works, Lockheed Martin set up a skunk works to kind of not have all those people looking over my shoulders and kind of, I won't say breaking processes because you still need them for certain things, but breaking through the bureaucracy. Uh, okay, so this comes out of my doctoral work before I started doing my dissertation research, which is that there's really six types, if you will, of complexity. All these papers, whether they were from engineering or physics or biology or whatever, really had type, you know, they split it up in different kinds and they could all fit my paradigm with a few exceptions. The few exceptions tended to be things like, is it uncertainty? Well, anything can have uncertainty. So I was kind of okay with leaving that one out. And is it um, risk? Eh, you know, I, I was okay with not including that. But what I came up with is three kinds of more static complexity. I called it static at first. And my advisor made me change it to structural because structural is not static. It's just more, you know, changes more slowly. And I agree with that now. I think this is a much better word than static. There's structural complexity. And there's three kinds of that. There's size, connectivity, and what I'll call inhomogeneity. So the size is how big is it? And it could be a number, like the number of pieces. 
or it could be, you know, weight, or and for a program, you know, in terms of size, it could be how many people do you have working for you, what's your annual budget, what's your, you know, budget forever, uh, your total cost throughout the life cycle. Connectivity can be expressed as a density of connections. So if all of us were connected, um, and we take n times n minus 1, that's all possible connections between um, each of us and everybody else. What's the actual number of connections where you can say, some, tell me something, you know them by name, and you know something about them personally? So the average number would be some sort of fraction. It, it can also be uh, just a number. So, you know, there's 14,000 connections in the city of Cape Town or something. Um, those are the ways expressed. And then the third one has to do with inhomogeneity. It could be the fact that it's a hierarchy versus a bunch of layers versus a network versus, you know, sort of it's something about a structure. I didn't know, in fact, the, the um, papers probably either didn't discuss how you count this or they had different ways because they were biology versus physics. But I knew that there was something important that the first time I did this I called architecture, but I realized the important thing about the architecture was that it's not the same across the whole thing. Uh, Yanir Bar-Yam of the New England Complex Systems Institute has a couple of papers that I find very interesting about an ecosystem. And if you throw some boundaries in, like a, a little ridge here or a wall here or a river here, you can sustain more species than if it's homogeneous. So there's something about the inhomogeneity and keeps little niches alive that is important. And that's one reason I had that. Anyway, those are the ones that are kind of more or less stick around. And of course, the size will change, the connectivity will change, um, how it's shaped might change. But then these are, th are the, really the essence of change, are the dynamic ones. Dynamicism occurs on any s infinite number of scales. What I've elected to do here is just take the endpoints. A short-term one, in other words, what I call the operational time frame. If Michael is sitting there with his finger on the button uh, on a nuclear power plant uh, and the 5.9 earthquake hits Virginia, as it did, what, two days ago? Does he do something or not, and does it matter? And in that case, it matters a lot, okay? Um, Suja is, you know, owns a, far, a grape, grape farm. We call this winery. Wine. No, no, the wine grower. You're a wine grower. And she's sitting there, and she doesn't have that kind of complexity because she could actually, you know, take a whole bathroom break and nothing would change on the grape farm. Or the, I don't even know what I'm talking about. Why, vineyard, 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 and nothing would change, okay? So I would call yours low and yours high, and sh dynamic short term. Also, the butterfly effect comes in here. So the fact that something that's little can actually become big pretty soon would come there. This has to do with long term and the fact that things evolve. So some of us are too young, but some of us remember the pre-internet days, right? You, you'd sent letters in a piece of paper and you put a stamp on it and wrote it, and then you waited a week and a half to get another response back, maybe. Um, that, ha I mean, postage or newspapers or postage or anything has evolved significantly. And it started with uh, my, it started all when my ex-husband bought his Macintosh, <laughs> you know, in, for, as far as I'm concerned. You know, we got this little thing there that had all this computing capability, and then, of course, you know what happened since then, and none of us could have predicted it. Or none of us did, and I, I would venture to say none of us could have predicted how the Internet would turn out in 2011 any more than you can tell me how it's going to be in 2020. Okay, so I, have, I, I made this, this type, and then 
when I started to actually do what my committee made me do, mean as they are, which is apply this to some examples, I couldn't come up with anything on that one. I don't know what's got a lot of change in the future and what doesn't. I can guess that your vineyard is going to be the same in 2020, more or less. But, and I can guess that, you know, the Internet is not. And that's kind of as close as I'm going to get, you know. But so this one turned out to be a pretty good example of something you're not going to do. You're not going to be able to come. This one is interesting. I hate it. <laughs> um, it's sociopolitical complexity. How am I doing on time? Halfway through, we're good. Um, all of us went to college, right? And at some point in college, we all had to make a decision. Am I going to go into science, math, and engineering, computer science? Or am I going to go into sociology, anthropology, political science, what? Right? And we all went here. Right? We all decided that's, you know, touchy-feely, um, I'm not good at it. I don't want to do it. I'd have to actually talk to people. I'd have to speak English. I'm not going there, right? I'm going to go here because I numbers are my friend, right? We all did this, all right? Then what happens is we build these huge systems like that army chart, and the technical problems are the solvable ones. And the sociopolitical ones, they say, well, you're the engineers. Why don't you do these? Uh, I have a friend um, who is an advertising manager. He used to be a lobbyist for petroleum companies and a lobbyist for insurance companies before that. And he was a political science major, and he wrote speeches for senators or representatives. Do you know how much he knows about that that I don't? I mean, I, don't, I didn't even have a clue that people knew the stuff that he knows, much less that I know any of it how to negotiate, how to set somebody up so that when you actually come to negotiate, they'll be in your favor. All this stuff that we actually need. And we made that decision, nah. And yet we're the ones that are being handed it. So that's my rant. <laughs> Renee got to hear it at least twice, maybe three times. But anyway, as a, as a part, I told you that earlier that all of these six types of complexity, I was then going to ask programs to say how complex you were. And I said, but wait a minute, we have to say what's complex and what isn't. So I said, the things are complex or not, the program or the project that's developing the things is complex or not, the environment is complex or not. And then I threw this one in later because of the subjective versus objective. Okay, all of these things over here are objective and um, th stuff that you could actually count pieces of, but where does this, how complex does it feel? How much confused am I come in? I actually did get one question into my dissertation survey about uh, cognitive fog or something in there, which one guy goes, what does that mean? <laughs> it's like, yes, he went that way. Um, <laughs> I didn't, it didn't occur to me that he wouldn't know what it meant. So now I feel bad because my question's no, no good. But anyway, um, then, darn it, one of the professors when I was discussing this, this with them, not even my committee, but a different professor, pointed out that most of the sociopolitical complexity really resides here in the environment. And I'm afraid she's right, and I don't like that. Let's pretend for a minute, though, that that doesn't matter. It might not matter. I might be able to get away with it. Anyway, um, what I'm trying to do is get questions that I can ask, and I'm talking in the past because I've already done this, 
Questions that I could ask about those types. Numbers. Remember, structural size was a number of things. Could be dollars, could be people, could be number of requirements. Interconnectedness, it could be how much might the task slip if, if one of its inputs didn't arrive on time. It could be conflict between stakeholders or conflict for stakeholders in terms of um, connectivity of your environment. It could be conflict between, say, requirements. Um, it could be inhomogeneity, and we talked a lot about uh, power laws versus Gaussian distributions. It could talk about variety of inputs. Did you, okay, raise your hand if you've ever put onto a PowerPoint chart the phrase sigma or variance. Raise your hand if you've ever seen either one of those on a PowerPoint chart. Okay. Do you know that the, those both refer to the Gaussian distribution? They refer to a bell curve where there's a median that's equal to the mean, which is equal to the mode. I remember that. I didn't remember that two days ago. Um, and that there's the 65-something percent of all things are contained within this one sigma and 95 and 2 and 99 and something and 3. Okay, so that's Gaussian statistics, which we always use. We always use it, even when we don't know we're using it. Okay, we, we calculate something, we get a, a, a variance. The problem is the assumptions that for Gaussian statistics and for which they work are independent things that are identical. What program have you worked on <laughs> that had identical and independent subsystems? You didn't, huh? So we're using statistics that are wrong, and particularly, this is rant number two, right? <laughs> rant number two. Um, in particular, what Gaussian is good at is kind of the middle. What they're bad at is the, is the um, tails. All right, so we have an average, we have a variance, a mean and a standard deviation for how long it's going to take to close a failure report, right? Who's a manager? I'm going to pick on a manager. Okay, Michael's a manager. I'm going to ask you a question. On your program, what do you care about? The average time it takes to close a failure report or that one? That's the one you care about. And that's the one that Gaussian statistics can't predict. So isn't that spooky? I mean, it's true. You can't argue with it. Anyway, I've, I don't know why I got into that rant now. I have five types of Six types of, uh, five types of um, complexity. I have the three structural, the one dynamic, and I'm mentioning that there's the, the short-term time frame and the long-term time frame. And then the sociopolitical, which actually MITRE, which is a think tank, has a pretty good tool for. Thank heavens, I don't have to actually pay attention to this part. I can go back to my MITRE technical geeks and they've got something good, I'll use that. Uh, not that I have any issues. <laughs> Okay, so and then try to do those. So each of those questions, and I tried to see if I could apply them to the system, the project, the environment, and then thoughts. And I did have one or two about thoughts. And so what I did is I created, I didn't really create 1,200 questions. I mean, I had like 300 possible things that you could measure to measure complexity. And then I would, you know, obviously add them to each of these um, system, project, and environment. But my advisor quite correctly informed me that you never get a survey done that was more than about 30 questions. So I ended up with like 32 uh, complexity questions and then what I call outcome questions. The outcome are, did you meet cost or overrun, did you, you know, and how much? Did you meet schedule and did you get performance? So what I'm trying to do, and I think that's on the next slide, 
Where are we? Okay. What I'm trying to do, and I said 50, I've gotten like in this high 70s, so that, that should be good, right? I should be done, right? I'm done, right? Um, that's, where, that's rant number three. <laughs> um, and I'm asking, how complex was your project? And uh, about 20 measures, I'd say it was closer to 30, but, um, and in each of them, I didn't say, you know, how big was it? Tell me the number of dollars you were budgeted. I say, was it, you know, 100 to um, $10,000? Was it, you know, 10,000 to, you know, 100,000, et cetera? So there are five bins on each. And then I asked, how successful was it? Or what was the outcome is what my other dissertation advisor says I should, I should say instead of success. What was the cost outcome? What was the schedule outcome? And I'm, um, and I'm correlating them. And the problem is, and I would not have predicted this outcome, but the problem was most projects are successful. So I don't have too many that aren't very successful. So if you've ever worked on a bad project, um, which you consider to be a mild to moderate failure or worse, please fill out my survey. I'm begging. I'm going around the world begging. I don't have any food for you. But, huh? Anyone. I'm, I'm there to anything. In fact, what I'm finding, one of my preliminary um, results is that cost outcome and schedule outcome are correlated rather strongly. So if you're over budget, you're over schedule. If you're over schedule, you're over budget. Performance is not, or at least nowhere near as strongly. So you can be on cost, on schedule, on budget. You can also be way over cost, way over schedule, and they threw enough money at you that you work, it works. I meant on cost, on schedule, on performance. Or you can be way over cost and schedule, and they, by, eventually it worked. You know, and so that's kind of interesting. I mean, it, it, it makes sense, but I didn't know that in advance. I thought they'd all kind of correlate. So anyway, back to where we were, because that's later. Um, you can see I have the system size, I'm sorry, the structural size, structural connectivity, structural inhomogeneity, those three types, dynamic short and long term, and then sociopolitical, the six types down the left. Across the top, I have um, the, the project, the system that's being built, the environment, and then the cognitive stuff. And so I just sort of said, what would it mean to have a question about uh, the system that's related to system inhomogeneity? And I came up with, you know, great one, Sarah. It's one that's covered, but whatever that says there. And then I realized that there's way more than one question you could ask. These are about the number of subsystems. This second column is about the number of requirements. So what I, I kind of created my questions out of this grid. Not all of the 24 boxes have a question that I asked. One or two have more than one, like um, the size of a project. I had things like annual cost, total cost, and I might have had something else, you know, about number of people or something. Uh, but I tried to kind of be as broad as I could in the questions because I want, and, and, I, and I strained them after I had like 80 questions. I got down to 80, and my, my advisor said, that's too many, and he's right. Um, I strained them to, would a project really be able to answer this question? And if Shuja, Suja answered it about her electrical power project would Steve that's right Stephen would Stephen answer it in a reasonably comparable way about whatever it is he's working on and so that's when I got to down to around 30 and would it be something that a project manager could answer as opposed to um, you know what was the dynamical instability of your project it's like you know right that's exactly a quote 
for what they would say, right? So anyway, I asked those questions, and um, I think I'll show you that in a minute because that's c too complex. Uh, that was something, <laughs> got that? <laughs> um, so what I'm saying is that I'm doing ongoing research that, and what I mentioned is the kinds, what you mean when you say complexity could be everything from how connected is something to how many pieces there are to how much does it frustrate me that, that there's so much going on. There is a, a Nkosi, he's not a fellow, um, but he's a pioneer. So he's one of the early, you know, we gave him an award at Nkosi for the level of having really started a lot. His name is John Warfield. Some of the fellows are real big fans of his. And he talked, and in his point of view, nothing is important about complexity that's objective. All of those things that I'm studying are useless. What's important is the subjective stuff. And so he, he's basically, as you might imagine, a management consultant, not an engineering consultant. Because if you just say everything those engineers are doing is unimportant, I don't think they'd invite you back, right? But the managers are willing to believe that. Ooh, I'm getting an attitude, am I not? Um, but he does have a way of writing down what he calls the problematique of all the big problems that interact with each other. Somebody wanted to use rhino poaching for the example in the tutorial. And all the big problems that relate to that, you know, poverty, um, immigration, um, uh, high technology versus high technology by the adversary. There's a lot of problems that you could twist. And then how, and that, which is interesting because the number, he has a, a metric for the number of problems and he has a number, metric for the number of problems and how they're connected, okay? That's the second one, right? And so it's interesting that my types kind of fit with his metrics um, in, in terms of how complex is this problem. He, and I think he's right in that back in the 60s when we were building the planes we were building there, they were complex. Back in 1903 when the Wright brothers were building their plane, it was complex. Nobody had ever flown before. Now we're doing this you know, systems of systems war thing, it's complex. And it, it's in some ways not related to the number of things. But on the other hand, it is. <laughs> You know, there's certain situations that you can address with better configuration management and many of them that you can't. So what I'm hoping is that I can come up with this complexity measure correlates with cost. So if you, and one of them that's interesting and preliminary, and I'm going to deny, oh, turn off the recording, going to not deny I ever said this because I haven't looked at it formally, is that it doesn't seem to matter how big the program is for, for outcome, say, cost. It does matter if you've ever dealt with a program this size before. So a relative to what you're familiar with measure does correlate, whereas how big it is does not. So that's interesting, because you would have figured it, but you wouldn't have necessarily predicted it. All right, so here, as a piece de resistance, because I'm tired of, t of presenting, and I thought I'd like go out with a bang, is Sarah's approach on complexity, okay? So for systems engineering. Here's the complexity related to a project, a technical system, and the environment. And I threw in some you know, cognitive stuff at the end. And you don't know where to start, so I'll tell you where to start, right here. Okay? So the environment is an ongoing system, the way things are, whether it's rhino poaching or whether it's uh, satellite uh, launching or something. Okay? The way things are has perceived problems, and it's also not fully understood. Notice the blue means it's a tie to complexity. Okay? I'm sorry. Um, in the mind, okay? So it has perceived problems that somebody has envisioned a solution to. Well, the environment also has stakeholders, some of whom have money, 
Okay, so hopefully we can get this Envision solution together with somebody who has money and come up with a solution that you want and a budget. At which point it brings it up to here where you have a project. Now usually when you have a project, you've got some kind of ongoing organization, but if you don't, you can create one. Um, and you've got some, you, some understanding what the environment is and what the goals would be of this system and come up with a plan. Right? At that point, you're establishing, or maybe you already have one, an organization with many people doing many tasks to build elements. Okay? The elements are elements of the system that's going to solve your problem. Okay? So we have task building the elements, and oh, by the way, we have um, somebody designing the system, designing the interfaces, assessing risk, which I don't have shown, but it's really one of these things. Okay? Uncertainty, whatever. Um, so we have designing a system, designing elements, building the elements. Uh, somewhere in here, we, we, we integrate a system. It should go there, huh? Um, and we verify that it met the goals, and then we deliver a system. Well, where do we, well, here's the system that has many elements that are interconnected in a structure with many levels. In a pattern, the system behavior emerges from the connected elements like the flight and the helicopter, and the emergence may or may not be surprising. Okay? So anyway, we have the system. We deliver it back into the environment, and... It affects the way things are. So now we have, you know, a super uh, poacher detecting system. And um, presumably the way it affects the system is an improvement. So we're able to save more rhinos. Um, over time, however, the way things are evolves. And in the rhino detection one, of course, they're going to figure out that if they wear, oh, I love this idea, aluminum foil suits, now you can't detect them, okay? Wouldn't you love that? <laughs> To have all the rhino poachers wearing aluminum foil suits. Okay, so anyway, the way things are evolved, so now they can go and continue to do what their goals say, which is catch rhinos and take their horns, even though you've got this rhino de uh, poacher detection system. And so the new, oh, plus when the environment, uh, sorry, the system affects the way things are, there are side effects. There's always side effects in there. Um, and the way things are affects the system. So that is a problem, which then you want to have a solution to. You like it? Yeah. Um, the reason I did this is that I had this uh, paper from one of the guys at Stevens, which had 33 definitions of complexity on it. And I couldn't put them all on the same chart. Remember, the complex system can't be done in a view. I can put them all on this chart. I'm cheating because I have these two things here. Okay. All of these things change over time, and so all the ones that were dynamic type things, and there's information or data about all these things, so all the ones that really had to do just with general information are down there. But that's pretty good. What? It sits on the arrows. Oh, it's an attribute of the relationship instead of of the element. One thing that kind of puzzles me, and I'm way done with my talk, but, you know. Um, did I put this on here? I didn't. <sighs> Shoot. I have one... Um, Whenever we talk about complexity, we always do the same thing. We always draw things and arrows, right? We draw boxes and arrows, or we draw round things and arrows. So we, we really divide the world into nouns and either verbs or adjectives. And I think that that's probably related to the way our brains work, that your brain um, has a 
bucket of verbs and a bucket of nouns and a bucket of adjectives, and you can be creative by combining an adjective. You might hear, you know, um, the brown or the blue chair flew through the air, okay? And you might hear uh, the, the, the brown soda can exploded. Well, you can immediately imagine a blue soda can flying through the air. You can't? Well, we um, uh, or, or, and you become creative because you have these things, these pieces that you can then piece together, kind of like what we do with all co co commercial off-the-shelf elements. We throw them together and see what happens. So I think that our brain is limited to thinking of things in terms of things and relationships between them. And I, I pose this as a question at a conference that how come we don't have any other way of describing complexity other than things and relationships? And I love this guy. His name is Mark, and he's from the University of Maryland. And he's about this tall. And he comes up to me and goes, I figured one other thing we have. I said, oh, really? Good. I can't wait. And he says, systems of, what do you call it, dif connected differential equations? Um, what's, what's the word not connected? Um, yeah. No math majors here. Systems of differential equations that refer to it. And I go, wonderful, thank you so much, I love it. And I come home and I'm thinking, every x is a noun, right? And every dx dt is, a, is an arrow. Dang. <laughs> you know? If you come up with a way that we model complexity other than boxes and arrows, let me know. Because I'm not sure we can. Maybe I should pose that to my liberal arts friends. Not that I want to. Um, they can what? It might, because they have a different point of view, yeah. So where are we? So the conclusion is, I would dearly love for somebody who knows about some programs that didn't work, or, or, or actually more would help um, for the successful ones too, to fill out the survey. It's still online at SurveyMonkey for another two weeks or so. Uh, you don't have to give your program name or your company. I do ask for a name, but it's so that you know, if I ever call you back and ask you about it, what you're talking about. So it can be Mike's program. You know, um, and I do ask that I find out, and I give you if you if you want question thirty or forty something forty two is do you want to get the preliminary results of this? And most people say yes, but in order to do that, you have to put your name down because <laughs> I'm not sending it to you if I don't know who you are. Sorry. Um, so I would like to hear that. Um, in theory, I'm going to get my doctorate. I'll be done by the end of the year. I think it, I want to graduate in May. I wanted to graduate last May. That was aggressive. And I had this nasty little occurrence in there, which is I got work. I'd been out of work for like eight months and got a whole lot done on my dissertation. And then they paid me a whole lot of money to work half time. And it's just hard to say no, right? So that's not a bad thing. I have some abbreviations. I'd be happy to take any questions. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, I'll repeat the question. We'll leave it recorded. Okay, come. Um, okay, the question is, what's the goal of trying to give a number to complexity, right? Mo I worked on what's called the System Engineering Leading Indicators Project. Anybody heard of that? It is downloadable online with that as a Google search term, and I do recommend it you know, be interesting. What we did there, at least the first version, we had 13 things that if you knew how your program was doing, it was a leading indicator for trouble. So if it went you know, south on something, you might realize you got to do something to protect your system from going south. And generally, that was a project measure, I realize now, not a system measure, because they were working through the project. 
And the goal, and, and, the, and they asked people what they wanted to hear. You know, the first version came out maybe five, six years ago. And one of the questions was, what other measures do you want? Because 13 isn't a whole lot. You know, we'll try to come up with some mature and, you know, worked over measures for the quantities that you want to measure. And they wanted a few others that were kind of standard. But then the one that was just sort of out of the blue from a lot of places was we want a complexity measure. And so Gary, the, the uh, head of the of leading indicators effort, said, Sarah, you're doing a dissertation in just this. Why don't you create the complexity measure? And I, I tried. I mean, I thought about it, and I talked with the one other guy. And he says, well, how about the um, in intensity of how badly the requirements changes would affect your architecture? And I said, you know, that's kind of what I call atmospheric parameterization. Pulling stuff out of the air, right? I could get worse, and I'm not going to because I'm nice. <laughs> Remember that. Um, so that's really, you know, there's no science behind coming up with the thing that has to do with, it's probably, it might be work. It might work because requirements are important, and how well, um, how much change a given requirement would cause in your system is important. But, it, you know, how good of a complexity measure would it be for both power systems and nuclear systems and, you know, ship systems? I don't know. So I begged off. On version two, I, I wrote this paragraph instead saying, we don't even agree what complexity is, much less do we know whether you're asking for program complexity versus system complexity versus, say, stakeholder complexity. So we're not going to do it now, but let us know if you want it. You know, sort of, I didn't quite say, although probably more truthful, say, as soon as I get my dissertation, I'll hopefully have a clue, and then I can tell you. So the goal is, though, if you are an acquirer and you put out a, a request for bids on a system-of-system -system solution that would, say, integrate some maps, okay, so some of the um, satellites would get mapped, some of the planes would get mapped, some of the intelligence on the ground would get map information. And you want to have somebody off in some bunker somewhere coming up with a generalized map that would show you all the stuff you can get on Google today, <laughs> right? Like where Osama bin Laden's compound is. Did you go to Google and, and put in Osama bin Laden's compound and it showed you? Did you do that when they captured him? And in fact, if you did that, there were like eight or ten places where it was, and they were all different. Because people put them in, you know, people put in where I think it is, and it was all different. Eventually, they all kind of converged, and they were all in the one that was really in the newspaper. But anyway, so suppose we have that map system, and, and, and we have, you know, what's your name? Daniel's bid, and we have Francis's bid, and where's Michael? Michael? I don't know. We have Michael's bid, wherever Michael is. Daniel's, Francis, and Michael's. We have three bids. Now, you're the customer. And you want to pick which one's going to work. Our, our DOD customers at least believe it would be to their advantage to pick the simplest solution. So in addition to how much they're costing, in addition to how much they believe their estimates, like, you know, you did a really great program on the one you worked on, yours not so much. <laughs> you know, the, the past history of the contractor. But they also want to be able to say, this has a complexity factor of three, and this one has 95. And they'll pick the three. Now, there's problems with that. I am 400% aware that there's problems with that. The 3-1 is oversimplifying, and the 95 hasn't thought about it. Or the 95 may be given a bum steer by the way the measure was created, so that's why I don't want to put one out without some thought. But if we really did know that this solution was simpler than that one, we would be happy, 
Okay. Or another thing is you're trying to decide what solution to bid, and this one's got a 3, and this one's got a 95. You'll probably go with the 3, whereas, you know, it was 5% more expensive, but 10 times as complex. You'd probably go with the 5% more expensive. And you'd say so in your bid and say everybody else is more complex than me, so you want to go with me. So there's a lot of reasons why it would be good if it's a good measure. And I don't know right now how good we're going to get. But the outcome of my project is not going to say what's, you know, how complex. It's not going to give a 3 or a 95. I've been told that by my committee. You know, if you simplify complexity to a 3 or a 95, you've gone too far. And I believe that. I really believe that. So they allowed me to suggest, you know, maybe I'll come up with a spider gram. You know what those are? So it's a 3 in this thing and a 4 in this and a 2 in that and a 5 in that. That's my spider gram for this project versus this one, which is, you know, all 1s. That one's more complex than this, just looking at it. Um, so maybe I'll go that far, but there's only so much um, veracity or kind of truth to reality that you can do when you make complexity simple. It's kind of inherently breaking it. So I don't know where we want to go, and if somebody wants to pay me enough, I'll work for them and find out. <laughs> what the hey, when I'm a consultant, I can say that. Thank you. Yes, thank you. <laughs> Sociopolitical one that I'm calling it, yeah. It's been called everything else, too. Wouldn't that be an interesting conference? That's the South Africa chapter's first big, big conference. Yeah. It's a combination between certain social and things that relate to systems and, the, and cozy people and coming together like that. Wouldn't that be a great idea? Yeah. You think? Oh, sorry. <laughs> I was annoying the religious people. Now I annoy all the government people. Oh, good idea. <laughs> I need your name, and I need you to sign that, and I want your autograph on that. Mm. Absolutely. It's get, and, and those who do think those ways should be able to have a good foot in the next, in next economy, yeah. Globally, absolutely, yeah. To change the culture of the humans. I'm trying to... I, I can't possibly repeat your question into here, but yeah. <laughs> well, I have a book for you. If you haven't heard of The Logic of Failure, it's by Dietrich Durner. It's, it's what you want. It, it could be that language created the, our thought patterns, and I'm not enough of a liberal arts person to know. It could be that our thought pattern, our brains can only function in terms of that kind of language. I think that there are some counterexamples there in some of the Native American ones where they tend to have, you know about... No, I was just thinking you actually need to find the tribe somewhere that doesn't use nouns and words. Yeah, they, they use like... Um, they <laughs> <laughs> Instead of what? You need to find a tribe whose language doesn't have nouns and words and see how they draw diagrams. How they draw diagrams. <laughs> well, yeah, I think there are some, some native languages that use like um, a, a concept of a, a running man versus a man runs. It's a running, and I'm not sure how that works, but I mean, I, I can't be linguist and everything else, too. Nasty? Oh, math. Oh, interesting. Nouns. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure those guys, okay, so there's, here's the liberal arts, here's the, the science and engineering, and here's those ultra-abstract thinkers that I could never keep up with in math class. Maybe one of them can help, yeah. I couldn't. Wow. I don't know squat about how... Well, I actually study Japanese, so maybe I should know. Do you... And in fact, I was complaining in, um, in the tutorial that when I taught...
my two-day class to MITRE. MITRE is a, a, a government think tank type thing. I taught it to them. They're all like IQs of 150. And they're all watching, you know, my, you know how I, you've already know how I talk. I don't just talk about what's on the slide. I bring in all this other stuff. And I, I mentioned Japanese adjectives because half of the Japanese adjectives take tense. So, you know, instead of um, the guy with the green shirt ran, it's the guy with the formerly green shirt runs. Or I don't know how, you know, I only studied it for a few years, but the, the other half of the adjectives don't get tense. And, I'm the, and I was making some comment about Japanese adjectives. And darn if we didn't get the guy in the back raising that and argue with me about how Japanese adjectives work. And I'm so feeling so guilty to not know this. And I'm thinking, wait a minute. Let's get real. I do not need to know about Japanese adjectives. It's not required for this class. So, <laughs> a group, a small, oh. well, somebody, in fact, my, my traveling companion, who is a piano tuner, so that's how far he is into math and science, was just saying um, when we were on the plane, in fact, that um, they've discovered they can't predict how an individual would behave, but they can predict how a group of individuals would behave. So there's something about coming together into a group that kind of, I won't say averages out the differences, but maybe regulates them somehow. Yeah? Well, I yeah. think it's all theories as well, because if you start to look at, um, I was actually thinking it's interesting, the last week, um, talk that we recorded was the one on complexity last year, which was by an engineer that then became a professor in philosophy. And Can I get that? Yeah. Yeah, so he spoke about um, com being complicated versus being complex. Um, so he said that Boeing 747 is complicated. You can sort of figure out if you have enough time how it works. Mm. Mayonnaise is complex. Unless you, uh, you don't understand the motion. You take, you take uh, uh, an egg and you take oil and it becomes mayonnaise. Um, so, and, and he spoke a lot about emergent properties. Um, well, is it complex? In, you know, I'd argue with this. Is it complex in this sense, the subjective? because it's confusing, or is it complex in that sense? And I, it might be more complex in terms of this connectivity. You spoke, yeah. you spoke about things which is confusing because of the, the complexity of the emergent properties actually makes it difficult to understand. Well, the difficult to understand is far over on this side. Yeah. But I'm also thinking that something about the mayonnaise, like tightly coupled or highly diverse, might be, might be a reason but, for it to be complex. A, a, a bit of a... Bit of a, a funny comment on his side, but uh, what he was trying to say is that the, the, the complexity of the emergent properties, which necess isn't necessarily a function of the amount of links, for example, because he said you can have a relationship between a husband and a wife, there's only two entities, but it can be very complex, oh, yeah. you know how it works. So that was very interesting as, as well, I was thinking a lot of the, the stuff that... I think I want to watch that video and argue with it. I'll, uh, it's, well, it's, um, I'll, I'll send it's great, video. thank you. Oh, absolutely. In fact, I wrote a paper on resilience. Yeah. Holnagel. Sorry? Holnagel? Is that who you're talking about? He, no. Okay. There's, there's, there's a couple of things. But mine was more from the resilience from the point of view of engineered systems. But there was some in there about resilience of ecosystems. Yeah. Yeah.
mean systems through changing. Okay, all right. Staying stable. Um, and Buzz Holling and the co authors came up with something called the Panarchy model. Panarchy? That's interesting. How the stuff is just beautifully applicable to complex adaptive human systems like businesses or financial systems or stock markets. I have, um, let's see, let's see if I can find how to pull this one up. Uh, what I did in O something or other was write this um, for, for one of my meddling professors who has ideas. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I just want to get done with it. Don't make me think. Um, was to write this framework, because even including the um, biological ones that I read, everybody's talking slightly different stuff. So I created a framework, and I'm not going to use this because I'm blinding myself. Oh, a low-tech pointer. Thank you very much. Uh, there's time periods, and I'll mention the time periods soon. But what happens is the system of some kind, it could be an ecosystem, it could be a child, talking about whatever it is it's resilient or not, is beset by something. Something happens. And it's called either, you know, a, a trauma, for example, or it'll be called an accident or something. Um, or it'll just be called something generic like an event or a disturbance. And, and in order to be considered resilient, it must do something to preserve something. Okay? So um, the, the five time frames are the time frame during the event. Uh, a long time in advance when you prepare for it, and a short time in advance when you avoid it if possible, and then um, the time when you recover and continue, but then there's sort of a short-term part of that as well as a long-term. So um, I haven't done much with this in a systems engineering sense. There's cope with ongoing problems. But I, I do recognize that when we get complex systems, we can talk about them and maybe should in terms of how resilient they are. Because we know that one thing that's going to change on every system is the environment that it's in. So if we don't build the systems with some sort of ability to, let's so go down to take it, must perform actions. Some actions um, uh, such as adjust things or sustain things or absorb the, you know, if we don't have that, then we won't be able to preserve whatever. One effect of using low-tech pointers. Uh, we, won't, we won't be able to preserve whatever it is that we need to preserve. And one of the other aspects of that, I don't think it's on my framework, is um, uh, up. while doing this, they're allowed to change other things. So some of the things think that the, th the structure, that the thing you must preserve is the structure. But most of them say that the structure is, is negotiable and usable and changeable in order to preserve a function. That's all I know about resilience. <laughs> oh, interesting. Yeah. Fragile, uh, uh, brittle, brittle, yeah. And, and then it, it sort of well, one one of the things that oh, interesting. One of the things that m one of my classes talked about on um, I think systems management was um, the fact that when you have automated things adjusting, like in the power grid, for example, you've got stuff going on to make sure that the voltage is exactly what it's supposed to be. And if it isn't, they'll do something, right? And you don't it, actually, the human beings aren't m being made aware when those things are, are pumping in. They're just doing it on their own. What that does is it protects us from small variations. However, and they point out, um, 
there's a problem because we're kind of sitting there fat and happy and thinking that everything's fine when they're really getting, and the financial system's a good thing. We reduce the... We reduce the interest rate so that, you know, to can stimulate the economy. And once you're down to zero, now what are you going to do? I mean, you're flat up against a peg in engineering terms, you know, um, and then you can't go any further. You're not going to have charge negative interest, you know. Lend me some money and, and you can pay me for that, you know. I'm not sure how that works. But what it does is it, it, it puts us in a sense where we don't even know that we're getting close to the boundary. And all of a sudden we get brittle and, and break, yeah. That's good. I think that's it. I don't know how much time we have. Are we done? All right. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It's been wonderful. I want to thank Renee for bringing me here. As he pointed out, he started asking me a year and a half ago. I said no. And then he asked me again. I said no. And I said, asked me again. I go, he must have a relationship to my daughter because I told her she was not going to a private school and she graduated from it. So I don't know what the, t maybe you two are really liberal arts majors at heart. And I do, thank you for making me come here. I've had the best business trip ever. I mean, I really, I can't say enough thanks and, and I appreciate it. This is the end. And now I get to go play with my friend and we get to go see sharks and whales and mountains and penguins and it'll be great. Thank you, everybody.